our guest today is uh, one really talented dude who I like very, very much. Buster Odeholm is a musician, producer, engineer, mixer, and studio owner out of Sweden. He's the drummer of Viljarta. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. The guitar player of Humanity's Last Breath and the owner of Odeholm Audio, which specializes in everything from mixing to IRs and contact instruments. His mixes literally sound like the end of the world. They are apocalyptically amazing. He's actually done several things with um, URM, Five Nail the Mixes, Fast Tracks, all kinds of stuff. He's been on the URM podcast several times. Like, we know each other pretty well, but we've never talked about his really, really unique guitar playing and his uh, really unique uh, take on that. And that's why he's here. Let's do this. Enough intro. Buster Odeholm, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. It's cool to have you here, just considering all the stuff we've done together at URM. I'm like super familiar with you as a producer and a mixer now. And I know that you did a fast track for us on, you know, down-tuned guitars and stuff, but you're a guitar player and a unique guitar player. And I know that you've felt weird about addressing this, but you know we have to talk about it. Of course. Yeah, we have to talk about it because it's... Cr- I'm going to shout it out on the mountaintops till p- people stop asking and stop saying I'm Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> This is the chance to talk about it. Let's explain what it is first for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah, so I play guitar basically upside down. Like I'm a left-handed guitar player. And when I grew up, uh, the only thing we had at home was like a steel string acoustic uh, right-handed guitar, which I took and just flipped to the other side because that that was what felt right to me. And it it just kind of snowballed from there. I, I didn't really learn to play the regular way. So I play with the thick string at the bottom and uh, yeah, light string at the top. And uh, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, if you want to play low notes, if you like low notes, they I, I can reach them <laughs> easier, right? I can always try like any guitar as a left-handed player. But the thing about that is like I accidentally can get to the knobs and change the settings on the knobs because my hand kind of my arm is right where the knobs are usually so that's kind of a struggle if but i can't really i wouldn't play live on a right-handed guitar uh, that wouldn't really work like the strap would be on way weird and yeah you know so it was kind of way like later for me like when i started playing guitar like way later i actually got a guitar that was left-handed but strung the other way. Like that was way later because I always played on that acoustic or on right, right-handed right guitars, basically. So what I want to understand when playing super heavy riffs, as you do, like where someone would normally do a downstroke, are you doing an upstroke? No, no. And uh, I personally haven't heard that huge of a difference in the sound uh, People like to think maybe that like, oh, he plays that way and that's why it sounds that way. But I would argue it it doesn't make that huge of a difference. Like, because 
it's so fast if you're making if you're shugging or whatever you're playing on the strings like the time between hitting let's say the third string or the thickest string is it's so fast so i don't i don't really know if it makes that much of a difference um you can tell me john if you hear any difference in my playing specifically and if you think it's because of that i don't know and there's more guys like me. I mean, the guy from Emure, I think the drummer from Emure has his own band, Darko. And he plays that way on like a nine string. But that's like a nine string right-handed, I think. So when you're chugging, the motion that you're doing, is it still a down or an up motion? That's what I'm wondering. Down, like you. Okay, so down, towards the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just that the strings are backwards for what's traditional. Yeah. Okay. My thoughts are that it's not the order of the strings that makes downstrokes sound heavier. It's the uh, momentum and the motion and the way that you're picking that makes it sound heavier. So I don't think that it would sound any different depending on which strings are in which order. I think that it's how you're picking that makes all the difference. So you're still doing downstrokes. It's just the string order is different. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, that is all about the picking for sure. And uh, I mean, if you got that down and you play upside down like me, you shouldn't have any issues with sound at least. Uh, there are other issues, of course, but the sound, I don't really think there's a huge difference there. I don't hear the difference. Like there's more of a difference to me if I move my hand more more towards towards the neck or away from the neck than it is for someone to play or or if i would play upstrokes uh, and downstrokes th there would be a bigger difference if i move the hand rather than if yeah the way i play i don't really think the chugs sound that much difference but the thing about it is the last hit the last string to be hit for me would be the low string maybe that generates more low end or maybe i t maybe i've kind of tailored my playing to get more low end out of the chugs that way compared to regular guitarists i guess maybe that's the thing in a way that might actually be better because you can actually probably play harder so you don't have to worry about hitting strings that aren't part of the power chord right so in a way you could even use even more force maybe maybe so let's put it this way i think and I've noticed this from both the URM and Riff Hard communities, and then also just in my life as a producer and musician, is that people are always wondering, like, how did this tone happen? Or, like, how does that person get that amazing tone? Or, like, why does it sound so fucking heavy or whatever? And my experience has always been, like, yeah, like, all the tricks with gear and EQ and amps are awesome, but, like... At the end of the day, it sounds that way because that's the way that that person sounds like when they're playing. It really comes down to that. Very true. Dude, uh, it's so clear. Like when when we did the latest Viljard album, there are songs where all three guitarists are playing uh, on the same track. Like someone tracked that, someone tracked that. And you just instantly hear the difference, even though it's the same tone, you know? Uh, it's just so clear to me where I chug or where I place my hand or how I slide or whatever. It's so um, individual from player to player, which is really cool as well. Do they do the thing where 
the player who's best for the particular part is the one who tracks it? I think in this case, it was more the person who wrote it was the one that tracked it. But that was not like, we, we, we are not kind of retracking a lot. So we just kind of together decided like we use, we're going to use this tone uh, and everyone do what, whatever they want. And when it came time to combine uh, riffs into songs, there were just multiple guitarists and that's just ended up, that's just how it ended up that way. Um, so, so, but it's super cool. You can really hear who's who. <laughs> There's a lot of trust with that. It's not how it's typically done these days. Maybe not. I think we're a bit more attached to specific uh, takes or specific recordings of a certain riff. Like when someone is retracking, uh, we have a hard time to uh, reproducing the the intricacies or the the small mistakes or whatever it might be from that that session when that riff was written so we usually just use the first take that essentially where the riff was created and uh and it's quite frustrating because a lot of the time there's not a or none of the time for this album there was no di's basically so pretty challenging uh, on that aspect but also really like um, authentic as far as like this is the tone and this is the sound from when this riff was written whenever that was and we edit a lot like but that's kind of part of i mean how viljada riffs sound like that's kind of you have to edit that way because that's the way we want them to sound we're not kind of trying to make it sound like a band in a room playing together it's interesting because you were saying authentic and i agree with you i think that it's funny because a lot of people mistakenly believe that authentic means it sounds the way they think it should sound like they 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 think authentic means that it sounds like someone played it in a take. I think authentic means it sounds the way it's supposed to sound, like the way that the artist's intended. And so if the intention is for it to not sound human, for it to sound inhuman, I feel like the way you guys sound is just like this disgusting, mechanical, just explosion of grotesque brutality, basically. And it doesn't <laughs> matter if a human played it or not. It's more about just the way feels and sounds when you hear that shit. I could be wrong, but that's what I get. And like this this album in particular, when it's kind of combined with real drums, that, that creates a really weird but cool kind of play between the super mechanical and the organic, you know. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what my stance on that is. Like we tried real drums now and it sounds cool, but I might like the static nature of program drums for Viljarda more. Uh, but of course I want to play, uh, play the stuff. Uh, so it might just come down to me maybe having to manipulate the, the drum recordings more next time, maybe to make it more mechanical sounding along with the riffs, you know, I love that you say that with no shame. Yeah. No shame, man. <laughs> it's great. And I feel that more people should have no shame about it. Cause there shouldn't be any, like, I think the shame comes when someone is doing something that's not their artistic intent or they're doing something because they wish they could do something, but they can't. And so they fudge it, but like create it like artificially, but that's not what they wish they were doing. Right. You know, like that's where I think 
problem is? Like the negative thing for us, like compared to a band like John's band, like Monuments, they will sound like the record live because they they are playing to get like they're at least great enough players to do one takes and do like you can play the song from start to finish and it will resemble what's on the album more than Viljara live or HLB live will resemble uh, the record for us because we manipulate the audio so much that some things we really literally cannot do live and it becomes a compromise uh, about like how how are we even going to do this effect or this riff or whatever it might be and we we do our best to to reproduce it but uh, some like i said like some of the stuff is literally impossible to do live so that's why like a band like monuments maybe is more of a live band than we might be i consider what you're saying more like a movie almost like you go you see a movie and you're not watching a documentary right like you're not watching um, something that took place in real life. You're watching the creation of the director. Right. And the art department. And some of it is meant to look like it could happen in real life, but a lot of it isn't. And that doesn't mean that it's like a bad movie. Some of the best movies ever are shit that could never happen in the world that we exist in, and that's fine. And I think that there's music, too, that could never be be recreated by humans just playing things and that doesn't make it less valid artistically in my opinion like i really think the thing that is less valid artistically is when someone pretends to be able to do something they can't do uh and then like pushes that out there like i mean and i don't get pissed off about it i think there's more important things to get pissed off about but if we're talking about artistic validity i think that that's the that's the problem and that's what i think that like a lot of people associate with music that you can't recreate live but i think what they're forgetting is that uh not everything can be played by humans just because you can create a sound doesn't mean that you can create that sound and it's only like in metal like in metal and rock it's only that genre where people are so stuck up about it like yeah no one cares in edm yeah, yeah, no one bats an eye on like a rapper standing just barely even rapping on like I saw those Lollapalooza live with like the, all of those trap rappers. They're ba- they're barely even rapping nowadays and no one bats an eye, <laughs> you know. I remember Mike Patton saying in an interview someone was asking him about like Mr. Bungle albums like how do you plan on doing this shit live? Like this stuff's insane. First of all, they could do it live, but uh, his answer was, well, our focus is to make the best record possible. Then we'll worry about playing live when it's time to play live. But when we're in the studio, we're not going, and I'm paraphrasing, but when we're in the studio, we're not going to shortchange the album just because of a potential live show. We're going to make the coolest thing we can possibly make, and we'll deal with that next challenge later. Right. I think that's pretty cool. Man, there were some parts on the final Doth record that were just so fucking difficult that I started to get panicky about the idea of playing it live because it was so fucking fast and precise and technical. Like it was like, I mean, Dean Lamb could do it, but it was like, it was stuff like, yeah, Dean Lamb could do it. And I didn't know Dean Lamb then. Shouts out to Dean Lamb and his mustache. Glorious. Dude, he's amazing. But yeah, like that stressed me out, but it didn't stop me from doing it. 
So I watched Muse once and one time. I've seen them multiple times. But one time I saw them when I was right next to front of house. And so it just so happened that my seat was right next to front of house. So I was watching their live Pro Tools rig. They use Pro Tools live? What? Well, it's not the Pro Tools that you're thinking of. It's like the Avid live systems. Oh. Pro Tools is like Avid's like shitty product that they don't care that much about. What they really do are live event systems uh, that are amazing. Like their so their live event gear is like unbelievable. So the they were doing all these automations and plugins and effect changes and all this stuff at front of house and like it was the kind of stuff you're talking about, but like you know. That's Muse. Yeah, doing like vocal effects live and everything, not on backtracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patch changes, EQ. It's way better to have like a delay, delay tail of a singer when it's the actual word he sang there, not a backing track from the recording. You hear that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if it's the actual thing. So it's cool that they do that for sure. And I could see that the EQ was changing depending on the part. Like they were doing all oh, that really? kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. It was intricate as fuck. And I could, they had all kinds of plugins too. Like I could, I saw like Fab Filter plugins, Waves plugins, and I saw that the plugins were automated. So EQs were automated, compression settings. Dude, I was fucking spying. Imagine putting all that together. I just know how much work, work it is for me to put all that stuff together for my Reaper sessions in like three different lengths, depending on how long we're playing. That just takes forever. And like doing that stuff must take months. So Reaper, huh? Yeah, Reaper. Uh, Reaper, because uh, <laughs> Reaper never crashes and Reaper never gives me errors. Like so. That's what I thought you were going to say. Because you use Pro Tools in the studio, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. But then Reaper Live. That makes sense. I mean, look, it's I'm using GarageBand for podcasts. Fair enough. <laughs> it just works. What do I need for a podcast? I need one mono audio file recording for several hours. One eleven seventy six and one Neve preamp and uh, a vocal booth. I used to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah. At the beginning of the podcast, I had a very nice microphone. I had an API preamp. I had a distressor Ooh. and Pro Tools. So like my rig now sounds better than that rig did and it, GarageBand never crashes. So I understand why you're using Reaper. Cool. So you're running three instances? Of oh yeah. Just set links. So it's a long session with like one thirty minute, one forty five, and one an hour. Okay. Got it. And we use uh, we use like the neural DSP plugins uh, for the guitar tone, just hook straight up into our um, interface and out the back, either into a cab or straight to the PA. An amp ter terrifies me. I've been through amp failures and stuff like that, and uh, that's not. I mean, that's just as likely. If if something fucks up on my end, I just restart my laptop in two three minutes, and we're up and running again. So knowing you. Because I know you as a producer and stuff, I'm not surprised at all. Like knowing how you work studio wise, like I'm not surprised at all that like you're more comfortable with this than taking a bunch of amps. Like I could, I can see how if this fails, you'll fix it super fast. Brown, like I, I get it for him. Yeah. And I don't really have a choice. Like 
Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> but I don't really have a choice, I feel. Uh, yeah, it's just the easiest way of doing it for us and what makes most, most sense and is like the cheapest. What I would like, of course, is a up and running backup rig that we can just switch over to, but we're not touring that much and playing that much so we don't we we haven't really done done that yet but of course i would have to solve that problem but the only thing that has gone wrong for me would be like stuff like for some reason in my rack the the what's it called the power section where i plug everything in it's upside down so if i put it down pretty hard some of the uh, like the contacts or whatever you call it some of the plugs might fall out and I wouldn't notice but I notice now for co- of course since this happened I've checked it every time but in this case like the MIDI the, the MIDI split that goes out to our whammy pedals that fell out so we're, we were not getting any MIDI changes and I just felt on the back of the, the rack and just felt that that was loose and I just popped it in and it was all good again so like that's like the the worst problem we've had live and with that rig specifically that's not the end of the world no could be worse yeah yeah it could be way way worse i i just uh i've talked about this before but i remember trying this midi technology stuff early not early in midi obviously i wasn't alive when midi was invented but like this patch changing shit um in like 2007 before you know, program changes and all that stuff were really developed. And I remember that it would sometimes just decide what to do for me. And, uh, and like, yeah, I would like be playing a fucking death metal song and it would suddenly just switch to a clean tone. Oh, it's like that James Hetfield thing, uh, that clip. Yeah. Except I couldn't switch off of it. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was MIDI controlled and there was no, like, there was no like panic button or anything. There's no, like, it, w- it wasn't, like, I know that, like, MIDI control is still MIDI control, but, like, it was, like, a TC Electronics, like, G... Shit, who makes it? You can tell that, like, they spent two years building this piece of guitar gear and then a week on the MIDI. Or <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, it uh, it discovered on stage, at some points, it would just, it would reset to this. So, like... So you know how like um, modelers will have their like default sound, their default patch? Its default patch is just a blank. So it's like a DI, like that's it. It was, it's not even like a clean tone. It's just like a DI. And so like it would just suddenly switch to that in the middle of a show and you couldn't switch off of it without stopping, resetting everything. Like there's like a whole system because like, it wasn't as it just wasn't as advanced as it is now. It was a long time ago. So when I think of like these types of live scenarios, and I'm thinking of like Brown, you saying that like it would terrify you. I'm thinking like it sounds like a dream now compared to how it was. So, I mean, I tried like an Axe Effects at first uh, and and MIDI controlling that, but the problem with that, it was an Axe Effects standard. So the first one. Uh, but the problem with that was every time it switched to either pitch or whatever it might be, there was like a tiny break or like a silence in the sound each time. So it's like, it's like, uh, and I, I mailed them about it and they were like, yeah, the processor isn't that fast. So it, so it can't really do it that, did that stuff. Too. So I was like, oh, 
Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I remember That's, that uh, happening. Great. But it wasn't like a break. It was like a like a, like a digital error sound, almost like a clip. Oof. So you would get this like loud ass clip through the PA that was like, <laughs> God, God, dude, damn. it sucked. But this was more of a this was more of a. Yeah, you want guess how many shows we used the TC Electronics system for? One, three, because it happened on the three. third okay. show, and then I was like, oh. never, never again. I I haven't grown up sitting in front of amps learning how to play. I've been, I grown up with a pod or or whatever it might be, always digital. So I'm kind of used to that a delay, but the delay. The the thing that causes the most delay is actually the whammy pedal. I kind of have to program it so it actually shuts off each time I'm not using it because it adds a lot. Um, but if you use Reaper and a low buffer size and like a neural DSP plugin without the high quality mode, it's very play, playable. I, I, that, like I wouldn't prefer it, but I have no choice. And me and Kalle haven't had any issues. Like we, we learned to play with it and it's not that bad at all. Uh, I think you're a talented guitarist, John. You could probably learn to play with it within a week or something. Yeah. And also the most important thing, like you guys always talk about on this podcast, I've been listening for sure. The tone is in the hands and everyone knows it. So that's the that's like 80% of the tone anyways. You, you should be fine if you like your own hand tone, basically. Or if you can tailor it in a way where you like it. <laughs> okay, so let, let's talk about tone in the hands a little bit. We kind of talked about it before, but uh, I want to get a little bit more specific. Um, and... I know we've talked about it on URM, but this is a different audience. Uh, and I've been paying a lot of attention to what a lot of our uh, subscribers sound like when they play. And uh, some of them are amazing, of course, but a lot of them are going to be amazing one day. Um, <laughs> but uh, but what I'm noticing is that uh, the one of the biggest problems, you know, besides like, technique or whatever uh is that i feel like a lot of people are not listening to what they sound like definitely when they play it's like they're not even aware of what they sound like they're so wrapped up in just like putting the finger on the fret or whatever and like that metronome keeping with that keeping up with that metronome that they're forgetting that if you sound like shit none of this even matters and so how you sound, in my opinion, is a huge part of it because it does because you can play one note. I mean, it's the cliche, but if you can play one note that sounds amazing, you're going to sound. You're going to touch more people than if you play, you know, seventy eight thousand notes that sound like shit. So that said, um, how did you first start figuring out the how to make yourself just sound cool on guitar and like? when you're working with other guitar players, what are the types of things that you focus on with them to help them sound better with their hands? I have a lot of thought thought about this. Like, as far as the technique, uh, I had, uh, you know the band Alt, where, where, yes. which we had on Nail the Mix. We, I, they've been here a fair amount, and we've been producing their, or writing their new stuff. And the guitarist there, Ulle, he, he kind of, uh, he's, he has a pretty straight forearm when he plays and it's pretty stiff. So he kind of uses his whole arm 
when he chugs and when he plays like fast and stuff and we had like a section where i thought it sounded too it was like a tremolo section like a like just a fast picking kind of riff it sounded like he played it too hard and too too stiff like i guess and we started to talk about his technique and I showed him how I would do tremolo, and that was just wildly different from him because he he's kind of gripping the guitar. He has his arm on the guitar, pretty like and like forcing it into his body, and then just kind of picking with his entire arm. And it doesn't sound bad by any means. It's just like that riff. I was thinking about another sound. So when I took the guitar and played, I noticed that my hand was more levitating like a screwing motion if you hold a screwdriver uh, it was that um, that kind of a motion but of course with a pick and i could basically do that technique with even without like leaning on the guitar with my left picking hand at all so it's kind of, and i saw like that gojira also does that the fast tremolo parts joe the guitarist stands like with his like his pinky uh, like all out and it's like just flapping his hand wildly but it's it, that has a special sound to it which is really cool and that kind of got me thinking about technique more and how much that it, like impacts the sound but i think the main thing that people uh, are not aware of and i'm not really sure how i tailored my playing to sound better other than listening but where in the tone is the amp and drive affecting it and where in the tone is the hand affecting it it's pretty hard to kind of discern what part of the tone comes from the hands and what part of the tone is the actual created tone and where should i put my focus on each thing that's a hard thing to know like you just have to sit down hours and hours to kind of tweak the tone and maybe tweak the playing and kind of see what affects what because i can make a tone for me that sounds great live but when kalle plays it sounds way different so i have to tailor his tone to his playing and we have i think we have pretty similar technique but it's so individual that also goes for the tone but when i reamp bands the way i make sure that the tone is good enough each time is i have my amps set usually like i want them like i rarely rarely change the amps but the di is being treated before hitting the amp from the computer and that way i can kind of dial in like the amount of low end the amount of uh, mids the amount of highs going into the amp because i know the amp is set in a way that i like it so the only factor here is the playing and the pickups and i have to kind of uh, account for that and make sure what i send to the amp is more uh, like what i'm used to hearing basically so there's a lot of eq and, and processing going on before the di even hits the amp but that's just a way for me to make sure that the tone is going to be what I, what I want it to be. In some ways, that's compensating for what the player isn't able to do with their hands. Right. But that doesn't have to be any negative or positive thing, right? It's just the way they sound. But the problem arises when the player itself is not happy with how it's sounding. And he's trying out all these presets that maybe John or me sounds great playing through. But when he plays, it doesn't sound good. That's kind of when you have to start looking at the, the actual technique and how you pick and stuff like that because there's so many different ways to pick 
and play stuff. And maybe you're doing that in a way that's not sounding the way you want it to. I guess it takes also knowing what it is you want to hear. It does. I think that's part of the problem I'm hearing with a lot of uh, what I'm hearing out of uh, the guitar players is I think they're not aware. I think they don't know what they want to hear. Dude, a great trick like for 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 doing t- like if you don't know what you want to hear but you know it's sounding bad or you know that this is not good what you can do is like put it put a fab filter eq like before the amp and go through the eq bands and hit that headphone icon that way you can listen to specific frequencies going into the amp like if you solo 200 hertz maybe and you can listen to what that does when you play. Do you like that? Is it too much? Is it too little? And you can kind of try to analyze it that way and create like a curve going into the amp that you're happy with. That could be a, a thing to do uh, if you're not sure how to get a guitar sound, you know. That definitely requires critical listening skills. Guitar does as well, just learning. Yeah, I was going to say all of this stuff at the end of the day requires critical listening skills. By the way, that is a great technique listening to individual frequency bands. I remember there was a time period where I had this program called Harman How to Listen and it was before FabFilter came out. So when FabFilter came out you could you could just do this stuff. But uh it would play it would basically play back music for you that you selected like it would create a playlist and then it would solo frequency bands and then ask you which ones they were in the music you were listening to, not on sine waves or something. So uh, so you could do it with real stuff. And, uh, and I did that to train myself to be able to discern frequencies better. It really, really helped. But uh, I feel like any way that you can train yourself to hear, just like you train yourself with uh, ear training and pitch training, interval training, EQ training helps a lot too because uh, at the end of the day, a tone is frequencies. I think that it's important to mention this stuff, not just for uh, guitar players that are, you know, trying to become mixers or something. I've worked with a lot of great guitar players, um, toured with a lot of great guitar players who have at least a fundamental knowledge of how frequencies work and uh, how they matter for their guitar tones. And they're much more able to dial good tones uh, through their amps, and they're much more able to tell like their sound person what they need, and they're much more able to communicate in the studio too. Like it's just a very, very helpful thing to understand, even if you're not trying to become a mixer. In my opinion, agreed. Agreed. Good. Glad. Because if you guys disagreed, I'd be really hurt. No, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be hurt. Okay. So now, what about uh, when you're dealing with a guitar player? who uh, is not really able to play what they are trying to play. Since I'm not a tracking engineer for for other bands, unless I kind of, or not not even if I produce, produce them, because they will track on their own time later, actually. So when I get files that are like, this guy can't play this, these riffs, uh, obviously, and if I'm going to reamp this, it's not going to sound good. Either I offer to track it myself, or I tell them to retrack. And if that's not enough... I don't know. I don't really know what to do, to be honest. 
my issue with telling people to retrack, and this is uh, my uh, experience, is I have, you know, I've gotten stuff to mix where, like, the guitars were super out of tune or something, or just, like, sloppy as fuck, to where it's just, like, this is going to be torture to try to work with. Like, it really needs to be retracked. So you have to retrack it, and it comes back, and it's not much better. And the reason it's not much better is because it's not like they got better in a week. Like they, the same thing that led them to deliver out of tune sloppy tracks in the first place still exists. Like they didn't take a month or two or three or six or a year to suddenly become better, better musicians. There's the same musicians. So I find that in general, getting people to retrack has not often worked for me. Like, unless they're right there with me, you know, if they're there with me, then I can produce them and help them do something better. But if they're like, you know, if I'm in Florida and they're in France uh, and I just send them an email saying, please retrack, what I'm going to get a week later is going to probably be just as bad as what I got the first time because they can't hear the difference. I don't yeah. know if that's been your yeah. experience too. That has been my experience, and uh, exactly that has happened pretty recently. So yeah. Um, what do you do? Yeah, and I don't. Really, I'm not really sure uh, what to do about it because uh, what can I say? Like a band that records a song needs to record the song. You know, <laughs> like if you're not recording the song, if you're not playing the notes that you decided the song is going to be in, like then I'm not really sure what to do then yeah i don't really know man like what do you do what i don't know what do pros do <laughs> the reason i'm bringing this up is because i think that there's this misconception out there that studio magic fixes everything which it doesn't and uh and it, like what you just presented is like one of the main solutions has been my main solution which is retrack it for them which i've done a million times and uh and even though that sounds like trickery, it's not. Someone is still playing it, and that's the point, because there's only so much fixing you can do to something that sucks. I mean, you could record it note by note, do things like that. Like, if you record it in a way from the beginning where it's constructed, you can do that. But if you present something really shitty to a mixer or whatever, there's going to be a limited amount of things they can do to work with it. And retracking is going to be the way to do it. And if the band themselves isn't capable, well, if you want it to sound good, someone's going to have to retrack it. For sure. Agreed. Yeah. So, okay. So when they say that they don't trust a gear review, I think some people, what they don't trust is that what they're hearing is actually legitimately that gear. 
But that's why that's why like Ola England's all his reviews, all the all his tones sound the same because it's that's just how much his his like hand tone or finger tone or whatever you might call it. That's how much it affects the sound. That's why it sounds the same. Yeah, I've got proof because we had the haunted on Nail the Mix. All right. Yeah, the one of the records that he played all the rhythms on. It sounds those rhythm tracks. You should download them, dude. Have you? They're fucking great. It's one of the best guitar tones we've had on Nail the Mix, like in all the years of it. And it sounds a lot like his demos, like his gear demos. And it just sounds amazing, like because he sounds amazing. The end. Right, right. And that's like the biggest proof of how much the hand tone affects affects the tone in, in general it's just how how alike all the the amps Ola has reviewed how alike they sound because <laughs> it's his hands that makes it happen you know yeah so, so I guess the for guitar players out there who are not interested in mixing who are listening to this and are like why are they talking about mixing so much we're not talking about mixing what well, we're trying to get through to people say that you record yourself you know you're doing a you're doing a cover or you're just recording an exercise or whatever, your band, and what you're hearing coming out of the speakers sounds like shit. Not the mix, but the guitar tone. More likely than not, it's got nothing to do with what you're playing through. More likely than not, it's got to do with something you're doing with your hands or like something shitty with your guitar, but like more than likely, it's got something to do with your hands. And that should be, in my opinion, the first, the first thing that you look at. If it's not coming out the way you want it to sound, the first thing you should look at is yourself. And you should never think like, that guy only sounds that way because he has this gear. Like, that's never the case. Like, literally never the case. And, and that's like a super negative way of thinking about it and like kind of blaming on something else than yourself, you know? And condescending, it's like diminishing how great this person is at the instrument basically to say that it's because of their gear. Um, I remember, I've said this before too, but I remember one day, I don't really know him anymore, but I used to know Ingve because he worked with my dad. I remember he played in Atlanta once. This is in like late 90s. And I uh, went and hung out with him and was on his bus and he was warming up for a show and he had like one of those little pig nose amplifiers. And he was just, you know, playing like Ingve through the pig nose. And uh, for people who don't know, pig nose is like this tiny, like practice amp thing. Sounds like shit. It uh, sounded exactly like him. That's the thing. Like with him playing through it, it sounded like maybe it wasn't like the most amazing guitar tone I've ever heard, but it sounded just like Ingve. But that's only because he has these expensive rings and the rings make the tone good. Don't you know that? It's the shirts. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. Has to be. Has to be. And the hair. Leather pants affect the tone. The hair, you can see the hair is touching the, str <laughs> the strings and that actually makes the tone way better. That's clearly what it is. But, <laughs> but, but dude, he sounded identical pretty much. Like That's insane. It's him. That's the thing. It was him. I also think that uh, guitar players who are... I think all guitar players should record themselves. But uh, guitar players who are recording themselves making videos of themselves should a yeah of course be paying attention to how they're playing are you sloppy or are you not but then take it a step further and listen to how you sound 
because uh, again, what difference does it make how tight or not you play something if it sounds like shit? You can generate frequencies with your hand, like how you how how you palm mute determines how much low end is going into the amp, and how you pick and how everything is how you generate the frequencies you want, and that comes from the hand and more more than it does from anything else. It's like an EQ. It's interesting though because we do care about gear. It does matter. Of course it matters. <laughs> yeah, he has quite a lot of amps behind him. I mean, Brian, you've got an amazing collection. And he, why are you hiding the poor pod? I want to see <laughs> the pod on the biggest fucking, like, I, I want to see a, a shelf for the pod, like a throne. <laughs> I understand everyone's different, right? Like, uh, so I realize that the real answer to this is it depends on the situation. Fuck that for a second. Just like ideal fantasy world at what point in time do you think that a guitar player should start really worrying about gear like in their development that is well i mean i i I can only think about myself and i spend a lot of time playing just a steel string acoustic forever and just kind of learning that way because yeah i didn't have an amp or even an electric guitar i just played that steel string all the time if i would have an electric guitar and an amp uh, when i was that age i would probably use that and it took like let's say i started i think i started playing guitar when i was 11 i think it took until i was maybe 16 or 17 till i really got into gear i remember like i got the line six spider and the pod 2.0 and i i was kind of happy with those like i was happy with how how that was sounding and i played through all the morbid angel records and like strapping young lad and like i just played that stuff all day and i didn't think about tone once because i was i was just liking what i was hearing uh i remember when i struggled to make a guitar sound good for the first time it had emg 707s and I was like, what, what is this? And I couldn't get it to sound good. But for some reason, my band wanted to use seven strings and that's what the seven string had. So I had to make it work somehow. And then I think that kind of started the process about thinking, thinking about tone and thinking about gear and how, how pickups really affect it and what pickups are people using. These guys are using that amp and that pickup. Maybe we should buy that and blah, blah, blah. Well, you had established your skills as a guitar player for years before that. Basically, yeah. But that was just, a, I think that's more of a happenstance than... That's a good happenstance in my opinion. Yeah, but I, I was happy with the tones I got from like the Line 6 Spiders because I probably learned to play in a way where I thought it sounded good. And once I had that, I was happy to play on a Pod 2.0 or a, or a Line 6 Spider. Only like I just wanted that metal distortion and I was good basically uh, for a long time. So whether or not it was happenstance or whatever, you're 11 years old. I think that you benefited because of that happenstance of not having the gear to change your focus on. Yeah, I always thought about that, like uh, especially the steel string acoustic, learning on a steel string, playing metal with like 52 gauge or whatever it had. It was super thick, super, like the strings were, I remember it, were really, it was really hard on my fingers. It's way harder to play on that than on an electric guitar. So when I started to play electric, it was a cakewalk, you know, compared to that guitar. 
that's kind of what I'm saying is I think that focusing on one thing for the first few years is really, really important. And that's what it was for me too. Like I didn't have a bunch of gear when I started playing guitar. It was several years before I got an amp that was beyond a crate amp. I was not into recording at first. I just focused on my playing. And I think that just focusing on one single thing and getting good at that is the way to begin and then go from there. But what I'm noticing also is one of the biggest problems of the current time period, which it's not a prison sentence. Like people can make the decision to not become victims of this, but it's one of the challenges of living in the modern day is that you have too many options for everything. And so when you get into something new, you can get uh, unfocused. Like you can get distracted by a bunch of shit that doesn't matter or doesn't matter yet. Like, of course, amps matter and tone with gear matters, but it, if you're trying to become a really badass guitar player, that doesn't matter yet before you're pretty good at guitar. Like you should get pretty good first. It's like talking about aliasing without getting a good snare sound first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Man, the other day on URM, um, somebody who's a beginner, uh, posted a picture of an amp that they were using for tracking. At, like They had a cab picture, and it literally had seven microphones on it. And it sounded oh. like garbage. And uh, and the person was like... Face nightmare. Is the tone, is, yeah, he was like, is the tone okay? Like, is, it fa- is there a phase problem? I was like, I listened. I was like, dude, this is the definition of a phase problem. Take one microphone, get that sounding good like that just do that and then if you feel like something's missing maybe add another but until you can do that until you can just get it good with one microphone don't even think about adding more and it's i feel like it's the same philosophy applies to guitar it's like when if you want to get good at guitar focus on getting good at guitar then add that shit later that it that'll happen if you get good at guitar there's going to come a point where amps and all that shit comes into the picture. But at first, focus on your playing, in my opinion. All right, well, I think this is a good place to end the podcast. Uh, Buster, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to chill, and I hope the surgery goes well and they don't cut your hand off. Thanks for having me, man. I've been listening to this podcast a lot. So you've been in my head. You guys have been in my head when I'm at the gym or heading somewhere. So it's cool to be on here. (laughs) Sorry to be ruining your life.